to those of you who come from countries or um, are moving to countries which have temporary labor migration uh, explosions like Canada. And, and, um, and uh, so I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on what I have to say. Um, I'm, a, I'm a philosopher by training, uh, and I have been doing a lot of work, which has been funded by a variety of different organizations on temporary labor migrants in Canada. And I've been interested in both in Canada and also to learn from, learning from uh, European countries which have had uh, a variety of different kinds of experiences with temporary labor migration programs. Um, and over the course of this work, this work which is sort of, it's, it's both, it's empirically comparative, but it's, uh, it's, an, it's an attempt in general to offer sort of a theoretical account of the moral problems and uh, moral challenges that temporary labor migrants face, both uh, from in the countries from which they come and the countries that they arrive into. In general, my, um, my observation or my view, view has been that temporary labor migrants are treated quite poorly in the countries where they labor. And in general, I have the sort of the standard liberal democratic egalitarian view that people who migrate to a particular country uh, and where they contribute significantly have at least morally the right to be residents and then citizens of that country. Um, so over the course of this, I noticed um, I noticed that, that there's, a, there's sort of a standard distinction in the literature between high and low-skilled migrants, and that the general view is that low-skilled migrants, uh, low-skilled temporary labor migrants are treated particularly poorly, they're particularly vulnerable to exploitation uh, and to various kinds of abuses, marginalization, isolation, and so on, and that people are very, very happy, both theoretically and empirically, are very happy to say about high-skilled migrants, temporary labor migrants, uh, who in fact aren't all that temporary, that they don't suffer from any of these injustices. That in fact, insofar as there are moral problems, they, they apply only to low-skilled migrants. And so the work that I want to present to you today is a little bit speculative, but it wants to consider seriously whether or not there are injustices or, uh, or maybe simply harms um, that attach to high-skilled temporary labor migration programs. And for those of you who are not political philosophers, political philosophers tend to make a distinction between injustice and harm. Harm is something which is unfortunate, but which doesn't necessarily require remedy. It could be something that we accept in the interest of some greater good, but injustice is something that must be, uh, that must be halted, uh, that, we that we are morally obligated to find remedies for. So there's this distinction, um, and, and, I, and I, I, uh, um, I asked Martin for the opportunity, and he's gratefully given it, which, for which I appreciate, to talk to you to try to tease out some of the thoughts that I have on how we should think about whether or not high-skilled migrants, temporary labor migrants, um, experience injustice or whether they simply experience harm, and therefore whether or not uh, we have any obligations as a host community to remedy injustices or simply to observe the harms. I'm not going to um, wait, in, just in case your attention span uh, de decreases as you get hungrier, um, I'm not going to make you wait for the conclusion. The conclusion is roughly that there are presently harms which high-skilled temporary labor migrants experience, which if unchecked will lead to injustices, but that I don't think, especially in the Canadian case, that at the moment they are victims of injustice, only that they are victims of uh, harm. So my project today will be to try to make that case and then to try to tell you a little bit about the contemporary uh, situation in Canada. So the motivations for this project I've just described are, one, there's been a traditional focus on low-skilled migrant programs and the, um, the injustices that these individuals face in their host countries. And secondly, uh, secondly um, 
I want to do a little bit to talk about um, the shifts in recent uh, Canadian immigration policy, in particular with respect to temporary labor migration programs. Are, th are there any other Canadians in the room? Yeah, well, there's at least one. Okay, so I don't, I, I don't know if you've been, uh, if you've been too busy being in the UK, so you've been following these. But uh, the short version, is, the short version is that um, Canada has a really great reputation internationally for being a country that welcomes migrants in general and has been historically unwilling to admit temporary migrants and has historically been willing to grant near permanent residence to nearly all immigrants. So we've, we've historically let in about 1% of our population a year in, in permanent, as permanent migrants. Uh, that roughly, that's between uh, 250 and 300,000 for the uh, permanent residents, people who are entitled to citizenship within approximately five years of arrival. And uh, nearly all of them, some, somewhere around 80 to 85 percent of these people, take out citizenship in that time frame. And there's a lot of a uh, lot of resources in Canada ha are given typically to these people uh, to enable their integration and their settlement. They're uh, given opportunities to learn English or French, whichever language they prefer. If they don't already speak it, they're giving they're given aid and housing, uh, settlement, various kinds of settlement services with respect to housing, with respect to accessing the labor market, etc. So we have something that people sometimes know as the point system, uh, which tries to do a lot of work to try to find the best quality migrants, those with the greatest human capital who are best able to integrate into Canada, uh, which is, uh, in my view, for worse, but for better or for worse being replicated across many countries. And um, this has historically been the source of immigration to Canada. And typically people have the view that immigration in Canada is extremely successful, that migrants integrate extremely well. And that is the right view because, in general, that's true. Migrants tend to integrate extremely well. They tend to be on the higher... They tend to be partic do particularly well in the labor market. They're selected for pe as to be people who will do well in the Canadian labor market, and they typically do. There's been some recent evidence that suggests that their children do not show the right kinds of attitudes. They don't feel as loyal to Canada, or they don't feel that they are as uh, that they belong to the Canadian nation. But there's a lot of skepticism of whether that data has been uh, collected appropriately and whether it's meaningful. So, for for now, the Canadian consensus is still that has still been that immigrants are in general very well integrated. So the shifts the shifts that I describe over the course of this talk. Um, our, our shifts towards temporary labor migration programs in Canada, which I think are dangerous for reasons that many of you who are Europeans will already know, that there are um, considerable negative consequences associated with letting in large numbers of temporary labor migrants without thinking through the consequences of doing so and without adopting policies which manage these kinds of programs effectively. So in the last 10 years, uh, we have increased in, uh, exponentially the number of temporary labor migrants being admitted. Ten years ago, there was about 50,000 temporary labor migrants admitted in any one year. Last year, we admitted uh, approximately 200,000 temporary labor migrants. So that is a nearly equivalent number to the number of permanent migrants that we admitted. These are increasingly people who are laboring in low-skilled uh, programs. But there is still a significant number of people um, who labor in, in high-skilled labor migration programs. The Canadian government has done, has, is, has issued this, has affected this shift very quietly without indicating um, publicly that this shift is happening and the reason for it is the same as reasons elsewhere which are that we have acute labor needs 
We have employers who don't really want to pay the wages that you would need to pay in order to recruit Canadian workers. The jobs are quite low quality. They're often, Canada's a massive country, and there's a, a lot of the jobs are in agriculture, so they're highly isolated. Canadians typically don't want to take them because they're extremely inconvenient to get to, and they're low quality labor. Same story as everywhere else, and so uh, the Canadian government has allowed a variety, um, has increased the number of different kinds of temporary labor migration programs, and therefore the number of temporary labor migrants in Canada. Okay, so here's the plan. Having said all of that by way of introduction, here's my plan. Uh, I'm gonna talk about the different demands um, that, that, that are placed in countries on uh, for high and low skilled migrant programs. I'm gonna talk about the conditions of these programs for both high and low skilled, low skilled migrants and the moral problems they each face. I'm gonna talk about what I think are the unique dilemmas faced by high skilled migrants. And, that the, and then I'm going to talk by way of conclusion about the dilemmas uh, in particular associated with having two tiers, high, two tiers of uh, migrants, both high and low skilled. And you will see this, this slide repeats itself so that you can know when I'm transitioning from one, uh, one talk to the other. So, th so this is, this is um, as students of migration, this is something that you will be familiar with. The global demand for temporary labor migrants is, in, is high and increasing across advanced economies. Some advanced economies are responding by uh, bringing in more temporary labor migrants, others are not, but the demand is very high. And in particular, although there is need for both high and low skilled migrants across, across Western uh, or Western European and uh, democratic countries, although the demand is high, in fact, the demand expands way beyond Western European and Canada, Australia, so on goes way beyond the, these countries, there's a, per a perception that the competition for high-skilled migrant migrants is particularly acute, that these migrants are highly in demand, that we need them in order to protect our economies where we as sort of Western democratic advanced economies, and that we need to be aggressive in recruiting these people because there aren't enough of them to go around. So here's my, uh, here's recently learned how to make tables in PowerPoint. One of the things that's really different, if you look at the experience of uh, experience in Western democratic countries of, of uh, importing, as it were, high and low skilled migrants, is the way in which they're, they're portrayed in the public media. And you can learn a lot about uh, the experience that each of these categories of migrants have by how they're portrayed in the media. So on the one hand, high skilled migrants are perceived to be highly scarce. There's not enough of them to go around. Low-skilled migrants are perceived to be readily available, that there's millions of them, they're clamoring at our doors, we can let, we can find all kinds of people who would be willing to take up low-skilled, poorly remunerated jobs in advanced economies simply because they're so much better than the opportunities they have over there, wherever there is. Secondly, uh, in, it, it is acknowledged, widely acknowledged in the public that there's a, a large or a significant need for high-skilled migrants, whereas although many of our many of our economies have a strong demand for low-skilled migrants as well, that need is uh, is denied. So it tends to be the case that people that the pub that in in various kinds of public fora that people say we have a strong we need more doctors we need more engineers and people don't talk about for in Canada in Canada for example about how golf courses in Western Canada don't have enough caddies. And so all of the Western businessmen, for example, business mainly men, in Alberta working in the oil refineries in their off time want to play golf. There's large, lots of space, large golf uh, courses, but actually there's nobody to drive the caddies 
And so there's a large caddy program, caddy importation program uh, to, uh, of people from, in particular, from India. I don't know why Indians in particular want to be caddies, but are turned out to be particularly skilled at driving around little, little trucks for uh, wealthy oil tycoons in Canada. So, we, so although the need is very high, there's a tendency to deny the need for low-skilled migrants and to acknowledge the skill publicly for high-skilled migrants. Relatedly, the integration of high-skilled migrants is perceived to be easy. The integration into the general community of low-skilled migrants is perceived to be difficult, or presented as difficult, and I'll say a little bit more about this in a moment. So in general, the public perception is that high-skilled migrants are highly desirable individuals and that low-skilled migrants are highly undesirable. In general, this is presented in terms of costs or benefits. High-skilled migrants are portrayed as individuals who provide benefits to a political community. Low-skilled migrants, in spite of the fact that economies need them in order to survive and to prosper, are presented as though they are costly in the public, or cost undesirable because costly. Okay, so that's the, that's the public portrayal. I'm now moving on to the second. As a result of this public portrayal, uh, and as a result of the, uh, in fact, I think in many cases, certainly in Canada, it's the case that, that the government, our government, so I'm not a huge supporter of our government at the moment, uh, but our government seems to believe that all of these things are true, as opposed to just a question of how migrants are portrayed in the media. As a result of which, in Canada, but more generally, we can see different types of conditions attend high-skilled and low-skilled migrant programs. Low-skilled migrants, temporary labor migrants, are typically, so these are obviously generalizations, they don't apply in all cases, they don't apply to all programs, they don't apply to all countries, but in general, low-skilled temporary labor migrants are not permitted to travel with their family, they're not permitted to change employer in their host country, and they're not permitted to apply for membership or for citizenship. The work visas they are issued are explicitly temporary. On the other hand, high-skilled labor migrants are either immediately or over time allowed to travel with their family, they're allowed to change employers, and they're allowed to apply for citizenship in time. As a result, temporary labor, low-skilled temporary labor migrants are encouraged to re return home from where to where they came from, and their integration is actively prevented. And they're actively prevented both because of these conditions, the way in which these conditions attend low-skilled migrant programs, but also because there's further efforts to prevent their integration. Low-skilled migrants are frequently encouraged not to live in the wider community, at least in Canada, they're encouraged to live at the agricultural fields where they labor or in the golf houses where there are caddies. They're not encouraged, uh, they're discouraged from uh, participating in activities provided by the, provided by the, the wider, within the wider community. On the other hand, high-skilled labor migrants, in part as a result of these conditions, but also in part because of additional settlement services that they are over time provided, are encouraged to stay and their integration is encouraged. So in general, we can see that the conditions for high-skilled migrants uh, are better, uh, possibly less morally objectionable, simply because of the apparent need to compete for migrants who have options. So in general, we see, we, in general, in very general terms, migration, the, ex the experience of temporary labor migrants is evaluated along, along two dimensions. One is whether or not they're exposed to exploitative conditions, and another is whether they have the capacity for autonomous choice among better or worse options. And so it is generally claimed that because of these conditions here, that low-skilled migrants are, the, are very likely either to be the victims of exploitation or 
and this is a slightly different claim, that these conditions make them vulnerable to exploitation even if they never experience exploitation at the hands of an unscrupulous employer. It could be simply that they're exposed, they're a particularly vulnerable population, uh, whereas high-skilled workers, because in particular because they can change employers, but also because they have an educational background which gives them an understanding of uh, the way Western economies work and what their options are, they are less likely to either, they're less likely to be victims of exploitation or for others, they're, less li- they're not as vulnerable to exploitation in general. Uh, so, we see, so we see here that um, if we distinguish between high and low skilled migrants along ex- the condition of exploitation, high skilled migrants are less likely to be exploited or less vulnerable to exploitation. Similarly, it is claimed by many people that High-skilled migrants, because they have skills and because, in particular, there's an apparent need to compete for high-skilled migrants, the high-skilled migrants in general have a range of options available to them. So uh, they can, you know, they're choosing between, it is portrayed as though they're choosing between an opportunity to go to Germany. There's a program with which many of you will be familiar. There was a program to recruit high-skilled workers. Uh, in Germany, which failed for all kinds of possible reasons, but one of the reasons why it was alleged to have failed was because the German state didn't want to issue permanent status to these migrants. It was one of the many, uh, multiple explanations for that, the failure of that program. But in general, the perception is that high-skilled migrants have choices, and they're, high, they're high-quality choices. They could leave wherever they're from, and they could come to Canada, they could come to the United States, they could come to the UK, they could come to Germany, they could come to Australia, and so on. And so they have these choices, and because, uh, because you have choices, therefore you can be, you are, uh, you're, you, there's not meant to be any kind of moral problem associated, associated with their experience, that if they don't like what Canada has makes available to them, they can go elsewhere. <laughs> so, um, as a result of this apparent, this, this apparent need for high-skilled migrants and the, the apparent need to compete for high-skilled migrants, high-skilled migrants are less likely to be expo- exposed to exploitative conditions. S- welcoming states, receiving states are going to be less likely to exploit them when they're going to be highly motivated not to exploit them to make sure that they remain competitive for future high-skilled migrants. And high-skilled migrants themselves have an opportunity to make choices among them. So that raises a really important question, and here's the, here, this is my, so that is all, in a way, the, uh, the background to the question that I, I posed at the beginning, which is, if that's true, if it's true that high-skilled migrants are less likely to be exploited, or they're less vulnerable to exploitation, and if it's true that they have high-quality choices among options with respect to migration, are there any unique dilemmas that we should be concerned with if we are, uh, my, my job title is technically applied ethicist. Um, so if we're applied, if we're applied ethicists about it, uh, are there any unique dilemmas that we should think about with respect to high-skilled programs? So here are the dilemmas that are typically posed, alleged to attend specifically and uniquely high-skilled labor migration programs. The first is that high-skilled migrants, especially in Canada, but not uniquely to Canada, are the, are actually. Uh, the victims of a lot of discrimination. So, vic- so high-skilled migrants come to Canada with the expectation that um, they will integrate effectively and easily into Canada, and they find that Canadians, for better or for worse, are still a little bit racist, and that seems uh, that seems unfortunate to them and unexpected. So we might say, so this is not a dilemma that is unique to high-skilled migrants, but it's one that is more apparent to them because, uh, in a way, 
they're all they're not victims to they're not um, they're not subject to other conditions which appear to be unjust and so they have an opportunity to to observe the uh, that that Canadians are still uh, that a large population of Canadians unfortunately remains uh, maybe not consciously but uh, uncomfortable with uh, the widespread diversity secondly there's the problem of foreign credential recognition uh, this is a, this is a problem with which you are presumably familiar in countries from which you hail or from to which you have migrated but there's a real challenge associated with um, in particular systems like Canada with with uh, respect to recognizing foreign credentials so the specific problem is that foreigners foreigners come to Canada come to other countries with credentials ready to work uh, in high-skilled program in high-skilled professions and then they find that when they get there their credentials aren't recognized and the procedures for getting their credentials recognized are difficult uh, to access or often expensive and time-consuming in Canada the Canadian government has done a lot to try to harmonize uh, Sorry, we're a federal country in Canada, and we're quite a decentralized federation, as a result of which the Canadian government can only do so much to control the provinces, which is, for those of you who know anything about Canadian politics, a source of ongoing stress. Uh, but in Canada, the, um, the, the, foreign, the, the federal government has recently, in trying to deal with this problem, tried to persuade the provinces that they should get together to harmonize their foreign uh, credential recognition system and the, the, the provinces have really pushed back against that. As a result of which, high-skilled migrants still come to Canada and depending on where they land, they will find that there are different procedures for recognizing their credentials which take different, amount of, different amounts of time and are differently costly. And um, as many of us are migrants ourselves, sorting out what the rules are that apply to us is actually a time-consuming, difficult process. So the reason in Canada why this is particularly problematic is that um, the system we have for recruiting high-skilled migrants is such that we convey to migrants, in my view, we convey to migrants the idea, especially high-skilled migrants, that they're being recruited for their skills and the whole purpose of recruiting them for their skills is to employ them so that they can take best advantage of their skills. So what happens to people whose credentials are not adequately recognized is that they have an expectation that they come to Canada, they will be able to labor in their profession, and they can't. And there are a large number, and this, this is a, a problem that uh, attends a large number of migrants, high-skilled migrants in Canada. So the, so, the, so the general problem, the general problem is what I describe in number three, is this possibility uh, of, of having misrepresented um, the expectations that migrants should have upon arriving in a host state in general or in Canada in particular. So this concept, this, this idea of legitimate expectations, for those of you who are political philosophers or who have a passing familiarity with political theory, is a concept that John Rawls has explicated at considerable length. Uh, John Rawls is, how many people are political philosophers? Other than Marcus? Okay, so, so did you know that John Rawls is famous? Okay. I, I, don't, I have no idea how, which of these guys transcends fields and which just remains uh, field-specific. So John Rawls, in general, um, has a view at, that political communities have expectations which are defined by the public rules that specify the scheme of cooperation and which are set within the context of existing institutions. What this means, what this means in very general terms, is that 
as a member of a political community, you have an expectation with respect to how you will be treated by members of your political community. You have the set of institutions are constructed in such a way that you expect, as a matter of course, that you will be treated justly or fairly or unjustly or unfairly, depending on where you come from or where you're living. But you have a set of expectations. And um, what makes certain political communities legitimate for John Rawls is that these expectations, the positive ones, the ones that you'll be treated justly and fairly, these expectations will be met. They'll be, they'll be met for all individuals. So John Rawls is talking entirely in a domestic community and he's talking specifically about citizens, but he has a view that all citizens have expectations with respect to how they should be treated and that they are treated unjustly when these expectations are not adequately met. So he has in mind how women might be treated, maybe not as much how women might be treated, but how members of the lower, of lower socioeconomic classes, which is his primary concern, how they're treated, are their expectations met? The poorest peoples in political communities, are their expectations met? Are they treated fairly and justly by the larger political community? And he also has in mind he's American, and he's also clearly motivated by the status of African Americans and whether or not African American citizens in the United States uh, whether their expectations about treatment, their just treatment that they should be treated justly and fairly are met. So the, here are the difficult questions with respect to high-skilled migrants, as I just described them. Do, does, this, uh, does this standard, this legitimate expectation standard, number three, apply to them? That's the question. I don't have an answer to this, but that I think is the difficult question, that high-skilled migrants <coughs> come come to uh, receiving countries, they have an expectation that they will be treated as, as near members, they have an expectation that their credentials will be recognized and that they will be able to uh, employ their skills, their high, which they've often acquired at great cost to themselves. They have an expectation that, that they should be able to participate on fair and equal terms with, with the members of the state that they have joined. When they find that those expectations are not met, is that an injustice? And so, so just to just to press your thoughts on this, um, I don't know if for those of you, I don't know what kind of degree you're pursuing, but uh, I pursued a degree in political theory, uh, and uh, the, the gods of political theory job allocation were on my side, and I got a job. But for those of you, Marcus, I have bad news for you. Uh, it's very difficult to get a job in political theory, and I went through a lot of trouble to get a DPhil in political theory. You know, I moved. I moved from Canada to the UK, away from my family. I worked really hard. I went through the sort of the standard DPhil writing abysses and lows, and you know, etc. I ran out of money. I did all of the things, right? And it was a great cost to myself. And I really wanted a job in political theory in a good Canadian university, but nobody thinks that I was entitled to that just because I put in the work, right? Nobody thinks that as a Canadian who did the work that when I returned to Canada, that my legitimate expectations would not have been met if I had failed to be successful in this field, right? There were not a lot of jobs. I knew that going in. It's not, there's nothing, there's nothing uh, quiet about the fact that there are not very many jobs in political theory, that it's not a field that students, although students ought to want to pursue it, they don't seem to want to pursue it. Uh, in Canada, there's a lot of movement towards public policy and also towards studies of China, and I don't happen to work in those fields. So, um, okay, so, I, so, my, so in my case, returning to Canada as a Canadian, my expectations 
my hope, my hopeful anticipation was that I would get a job, but, my, but I didn't have any, and I, don't, I think, I presume your intuitions are with me, that I didn't have any legitimate expectation that I get a job. So I am not, wouldn't have been treated unjustly. Other political philosophers are not treated unjustly when they don't get jobs in the profession. So, that's a di so if it's true of me and I'm already a member, then we have to ask whether or not high-skilled migrants have the legitimate expectation that they be treated fairly and justly uh, in such a way that they are, that they are, that fair and just treatment in this case requires that they be hired as quickly as possible with very little expense to themselves in the environment or in the profession that they were trained to, uh, they were trained in. Okay, so I don't know the answer to that question, but that I think is the question. Do migrants who are selected for their skills have a legitimate expectation when they arrive that they be, they be hired in those fields, and are they met in a way that is unjust if they don't immediately get hired in those fields? So, uh, so what do I conclude? Um, I conclude this, that there are dilemmas, a variety of dilemmas posed here. Uh, so in the first place, the unique question that it that pertains, so according to this slide, the unique <coughs> slide, this, the possible unique question that applies to high-skilled migrants is the question of legitimate expectations. So if you think that there are legitimate expectations for high-skilled migrants that are unmet, then you also believe there's an injustice that we need to remedy. But there are other dilemmas. One of them is the possibility, at least in Canada, but possibly elsewhere, with the introduction of two tiers of migrants. One category of migrants which is clearly uh, clearly um, being invited to join us as, as, as citizens, and another which sometimes can join us as citizens, these are the low-skilled migrants, but in general are discouraged from joining us. So you might think that there's an injustice simply because you're an egalitarian and you hate inequalities. And so you might think that there's an injustice with respect to the inequalities between migrants in general. Now you probably, on reflection, maybe I'm a little bit sympathetic to this possibility, but in general, migrants are all treated differently, right? If you go as a tourist, you're treated in one way. If you go as a student, you're treated in another way. So it is in general not the expectation that all migrants be treated equally. Different migrants can seem to be acceptably treated differently. So the question is whether or not the inequality between laboring migrants, two categories of migrants, which are, which are uh, crucially the same along one dimension, which is that they are all essential to the, a specific economy. They are all contributing members to the economy of, of the state in which they reside. Is there an injustice in that inequality between these the specific two categories of migrants? And more generally, should we worry about the shift in the general percept, public perception of migrants? In Canada in particular, the Canadian government has done a lot to make sure that Canadians love immigrants. There's a huge ongoing public relations campaign Canadians think to make Canadians think that, that immigrants are essential to our economy, because they are, and Canadians in general report high levels of support for immigration. But one of the reasons for this is because immigrants are extremely successful in Canadian politics and the Canadian economy. And so one danger of admitting lots of low-skilled migrants into the Canadian political scene, and perhaps more generally, one real danger is that the public will come to view immigrants as people who are on the margins of society, who are isolated, and are, who are people 
who appear to produce costs rather than benefits to the Canadian political economy. So there may be a danger associated with two tiers of migrant admission that the general public perception of migrants shifts. So my tentative conclusions are these. Uh, for now, high-skilled migrants are the victims of harm but not injustice. I think this because, uh, and actually I'm interested in your intuitions on this uh, and whether you think I'm telling the right kind of story and then also what kind of, what kind of bulk I can add to make the story more persuasive if you think I've got it right. That high-skilled migrants are the victim of a real harm, that they have expectations which uh, ought to be met, but that in the same way that I am not necessarily entitled to a job, there's something similar about my experience when I return to Canada and the experience of high-skilled migrants when they come to Canada uh, or when they migrate in general. So it seems like there are victims of harm that we feel badly. Uh, the standard view, the standard picture is of the doctor who ends up, the Russian doctor who ends up as a taxi driver. So we feel badly about that person, but we don't think it's crazy that they go through an ex a long period of uh, foreign credential recognition and so that it takes time for them to integrate it to the labor market over time. Um, so that's what I think, at least at the moment, especially in the Canadian context, these migrants are the victims of harm but not injustice. I think this is bad public policy. I work in a public policy school. I think this is really bad public policy, but that for now it's not morally objectionable. I think that insofar as there are moral problems associated with these decisions, that they are likely to emerge over the long term. Which is to say, I think that over time, what happens, what will happen, that we can, we can reliably and predictably observe that over time, if these trends continue, that we're going to have a class of migrants who are generally failing to integrate, failing to perform, uh, etc., and likely to increase the experience of discrimination and likely to increase the difficulties of integration that migrants face in general, and that when this happens, this will be an injustice, not a harm. So in summary, I think that moral problems lurk on the horizon, but that we're not presently causing injustice.